enjoying today's episode. If you're not going to be using it yourself, make sure that you have a market in which to sell it before you, you know, you take the dive into it. Typically, you might budget for sort of five or six tonnes a hectare of hemp. From a farmer's perspective, the biggest thing is it's a new crop. It's not a new crop because it was grown between 1926 and 1972 or 74. Welcome to Cropcast. I am Tiffany Stevenson, and today we're going to be talking about alternative crops. We have three guest speakers on today. Donald and Barr talking about rye, Mark Bysher-Gibbs talking about hemp, and Ian Riddle talking about sugar beet. If you listen through until the end, you'll hear an update from just now out in the field. First up, we're talking to Donald about rye. Donald, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Hi, Tiffany. Donald Dunbar. I am a consultant, senior consultant in the southeast region for SEC Consulting. And uh, goodness me, I've been with SEC Consulting for 26 years. So a lot of farmers have been talking about growing rye and I'm seeing more and more fields of rye being grown now. What are they growing rye for and what are the markets available for the crop? Yeah, so it's a crop that we have started to see uh, uh, reappear uh, in in Scotland. Um, I remember uh, uh, many years ago that rye was being uh, grown uh, for an early bite or silage crop. Uh, but the advent of hybrid rye was the was the big change, the uh, the breakthrough moment, and it was picked up uh, as a crop by the anaerobic digesters that were uh, uh, producing biogas. Uh, it produces a big yield. It has a high uh, gas yield, and so. I think from that, people started to see it growing in fields and it ignited the interest in other people, uh, other growers. And from that, I have now seen dairy farmers grow rye, uh, hybrid rye, uh, and uh, some farmers looking for an alternative in their rotation have started to grow hybrid rye as well. So what are the advantages of growing hybrid rye? It starts to grow early in the season. It is vigorous uh, in its growth. And because it starts to grow earlier in the season, it's ready to harvest earlier. And um, it produces a big biomass yield. So that is attractive to the biogas plant. It may also be the thing that's attractive to the dairy farmer because what it doesn't produce is a high quality yield. You can't compare it with growing grass uh, to put in the silage pit. But those large dairy farms have been using it uh, to provide a lower quality fodder so that they maybe mix with their high uh, quality silage or it's part of the base ration for the dry cows. Because it's uh, harvested earlier, it means that they can then do something else with that field uh, uh, for, uh, for, the, for the rest of the growing season. That may be reseeding it into grass. Uh, it may be to uh, then put in another crop in as part of their rotation. 
You're saying that it's harvested earlier. When would you be looking to harvest it? You're, you're harvesting before you would harvest wheat. It's probably more similar to winter oats in terms of its harvesting date. The hybrid rye also has a lower fertilizer requirement than the other cereal crops. Uh, it's less susceptible to some of the yield sapping diseases, although the caveat there is that it is prone to rust. But rust can be uh, controlled using old chemistry at a lower price. So in terms of a gross margin, it actually is quite attractive. And what the comments I have had from people who are growing rye and taking it to a mature crop through the combine is that it is more reliable than a second wheat, as in its yield is consistent. You don't have a good year and then a bad year. Um, and that a, it has lower growing cost because of uh, the reduced inputs. It produces a huge volume of straw, and that is either a, a bonus, a benefit, or it potentially is, you know, is a bit of a, uh, a, a the downside because you are a slower harvest speed because of that. You're probably typically half the speed that you'd be going if you were cutting wheat, and it's just because of that volume of straw. It's not hard to thresh. It's just you've got to. Uh, bring that straw into the combine, get it through the drums and uh, across the straw walkers. So that's definitely one challenge of growing hybrid rye. What other challenges do farmers have to face when they're trying it out? I think we cannot uh, ignore the fact that it is a tall crop and it will grow over six foot in height. So the growth regulator to stop it going down is obviously essential. If you're growing it as a forage crop, you would put on two group plant growth regulators um, when they, you know, you're at that tillering early stem extension stage. If you are taking it through to being a grain crop, you would have a third one on uh, to reduce that neck length. Uh, so trying to keep it uh, around uh, probably that, you know, four to four foot, five foot, maybe. It's a bit like oats in that regard. You know, oats can be a tall crop. So there are, are similarities. So, so think about, you know, growing a crop of oats in terms of that growth regulator. The other downside uh, is the, the potential for volunteers then emerging in other crops and you're unable to control those volunteers. So you do need to think about where you are positioning it in the rotation. You very nicely went linked on to my next question there, Donald, of where would you try and place it in the rotation? So we have growers uh, around us in the borders uh, who are putting rye in uh, as an entry crop for oilseed rape instead of winter barley, because winter barley is quite an expensive crop to grow. It is a slightly later harvest than winter barley, but uh, it has found a position there. And they have also put it in the position as a second wheat. Um, uh, and I guess if you're going to uh, 
you need to think about what you're going to follow that rye with. Um, you might choose to grow a second rye, so then the volunteers aren't an issue. But it may be that you put it into a crop where you know that you can control them. So if you if you are going into some uh, non-cereal crop, uh, then you know the chances are you are going to be able to uh, control the volunteers. Like if it was obviously grape, you know you're going in with a graminicide anyway. There's definitely lots to think about when you're positioning um, the hybrid rye in the rotation. Are there any other key agronomic factors which growers need to be aware of? Uh, I think they, generally speaking, are, are, are other good factors. It's, it's, it's more drought tolerant, and we've had a series of dry springs, and, and it hasn't held the rye back. Um, it, it, it's pretty frost tolerant as well. It performs well across a range of different soil types. Uh, it, see, it, it probably does better than other cereals where it's in a, a light sandy stony, maybe a low fertility soil, but it actually also does very well on more fertile soils. And speaking to some of the growers who have been taking it to um, a harvestable crop, you know, they're getting 10 tons a hectare um, consistently. So it's not a, uh, it's not a low yielding uh, alternative to wheat. Uh, it's less prone to soil burn soil-borne root and stem uh, diseases. Uh, it's not a break crop from wheat, but it is more tolerant to take all uh, uh, and other soil-borne diseases. Um, foliar disease-wise, I mentioned it is uh, weak on rust, but it doesn't have the same, uh, it doesn't suffer the same way from septoria. It will get mildew uh, potentially and some of the other diseases, but these aren't, you know, particularly yield sapping. Uh, I, I did mention it as a lower nitrogen requirement, so you know it's quite an attractive all all round package there. Uh, one of the agronomic features about it is that because of that volume of straw, you're going to remove a lot of uh, potash. Um, so that just needs to be kept in mind. You need to keep your status up. Um, it is a cross-pollinator. And because of that, there is a potential higher risk to having uh, ergot um, appearing in the ear. But it, it, to be honest, it's not something that we've seen much of. Um, and I did mention the volunteer thing. So, yeah, that... I think that kind of covers the, some of the agronomics. There's definitely a lot of plus points for rye. And I think by the sounds of it, if people can deal with having to put a lot of growth regulators on to control the height and have a good slot in the rotation for it, just in case as volunteers, I feel like there's a lot of benefits to grow rye. I think, I think there is. And it has that lower fertilizer requirement. Uh, in terms of nitrogen, and that's because, it, again, it's a bit like oats. It, it is a nitrogen scavenger. It uh, can extract that nitrogen from the soil. And so in that first year of growing, you you know, you might be happily get away with 110 kilograms of nitrogen. You might need more if you're going to grow a second crop or if uh, the ground is, you know, already continually cropped for cereals and uh, that natural 
residue uh, of fertility is not there. Uh, from an MVZ point of view, the Nmax is 180 kilograms, but I haven't come across a grower who is applying that level of nitrogen to it in any circumstance. 150, for the people I've talked to, is uh, about as high as they go. Very good. You mentioned um, that there's people growing it for biomass and people growing it for dairies. Have you heard of many people selling the grain? I don't know what the market's like for that. So, so of the people I spoke to, a uh, uh, it was an arable farmer with uh, pigs and he started growing rye three years ago. He uses um, his wheat and barley in his uh, feed ration for the pigs and he introduced the rye and he saw an improvement in performance because of that rye. And that's to do with uh, some of the amino acids that you find in the rye. So monogastrics, there's a benefit from it. He then got his neighbor to grow some. And his neighbor uh, was impressed with the crop. Uh, so n rather than just growing some for the, his neighboring pig producer, he's grown more and uh, he is selling that into the rye grain market. Um, there's a demand for rye or there's a market. I, I have to hesitate to say there's a demand, but there is a market for rye for milling, uh, uh, for distilling and for feed. So there's lots of different options that if you do grow rye, there's plenty of places that potentially it could go into. Yeah, it's it's not an established crop in Scotland. It is growing and it's more a localised crop. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, right, this sounds quite good. Um, if you're not going to be using it yourself, make sure that you have a market in which to sell it before you, you, know, you take the dive into it. That's definitely great advice. Thanks, Donald. Is there some publications or videos that people can go and watch if they're interested in learning more about rye? There is an article in the FAS uh, website, um, and I'm sure you'll put the link in for that rather than me trying to tell you where it is. Uh, there's also a video uh, that I did with uh, the, uh, a biogas plant uh, where the, the manager of that plant was talking about uh, why he uses rye uh, and just a you know, wider story about the biogas uh, plant. Uh, in terms of varieties, AHDB have a recommended list for winter rye. Uh, the varieties are are pretty much limited to two breeders and, and dominated by one. Uh, they, there's not huge differences, but I think if you're speaking to the merchant, you know they they uh, who sells seed, you will get uh, their their uh, advice um, on whether it's a good one for. Uh, the the uh, producing the forage crop for the for the bio bio plant and has been producing fifty tons a hectare of biomass, uh, or if it's one that is better for taking through as a grain, and your know, straw height and standability might you know be the thing that separates what A from B. We'll definitely put links in the show notes to these publications which Donald's talking about. Thank you, Donald. Thank you.
Mark, and thank you very much for joining us today. Would you like to begin by introducing yourself? Hi, Tiffany. I'm Mark Bash-Gibbs. I'm an agricultural consultant with SAC Consulting based in Edinburgh. So today we're going to be talking about hemp. Hemp is something that I know I've not seen growing in Scotland. Um, so would you like to begin by telling us, Mark, what hemp is grown for and what the markets are for the crop? Yeah, sure. Uh, hemp's an interesting one. Um, just by the virtue, I suppose, that it is a new crop. Um, and I say a new crop, we're not actually growing it uh, in any great volume here in Scotland. Um, of course, there's hemp for fibre and there's hemp for seed. And, and whilst there are a few pockets of growers uh, growing hemp for seed and, and the derivative products, hemp for fibre uh, in Scotland uh, hasn't really taken off yet. Uh, and that's really because um, the... Uh, there's issues with the supply chain um, and it's one thing growing the crop uh, obviously at the end of the day you've got to have a, an end market and you've got to be able to process the hemp um, fiber to to add value and to put it into the supply chain um, I think half the battle is sort of finding out what's going on out there and who's doing what and we are as a country, uh, when I say a country, sort of the UK, uh, quite a long way behind perhaps Europe. Uh, and we, we did grow hemp in Scotland um, back in the uh, in the 19th century and early, early 20th century, uh, and it was used for for ropes for shipping and uh, and. And along came polypropylene and, and sailing vessels were replaced by steam and the, the hemp industry declined. Um, if you look across the channel to France, they, they, they do grow a lot of uh, hemp on the, on the continent there. Uh, the EU as a whole grows, grows a fair bit of hemp uh, and has a much more integrated and developed supply chain. Uh, at the moment, there's about... 1,000 hectares of hemp grown in the UK, uh, predominantly in, in England. Um, and the interest, I suppose, comes from the possibility of introducing a new crop into the rotation. So do you think hemp uh, could potentially be a growing market that, that could gradually be an increase in what? Um, could be grown because of the supply chain, or do you think it's quite limited? Well, I think it's interesting because I think that's a question a lot of people are asking. And actually, if you uh, have a look not too far afield, uh, we've got the Hemp 30 project running, which is a, a project that's led by the University uh, of York um, with a number of different associated companies contributing to it, which is looking to increase the hemp hectare grown in the UK to some 80,000 hectares by 2030. Um, now, they wouldn't be doing that unless they thought there was potential for the crop um, to be introduced into rotations and for farmers to grow it. Um, I think it's important to point out that, um, yes, there are some wonderful attributes that hemp can bring uh, to a farmer's rotation. Um, one of those 
is carbon capture. Um, but the other is the ability to uh, grow a crop with relatively very little inputs. Um, but as I say, at the end of the day, that hemp crop that's that's harvested um, in September or October has to be decorticated. And by decorticating, we mean separating out the, the fiber element of the hemp from the, the pith, the middle, which we call the shiv. Um, and it's those hemp fibers that can then be uh, processed into all the various materials that it's currently being used, ranging from hempcrete, sort of building materials, insulation. Um, uh, and that's before you consider the sort of uh, biomedicinal and, and car component uses and the various other uses that hemp's been put to. So it does sound like there's a lot more work in processing the hemp. So now I can understand a bit more why there's some supply chain issues because they need to be able to process it, um, which sounds a lot more difficult than if they're just processing wheat or barley and you just take the combine through and it splits up the grain from the straw. No, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, the decortication process is a physical process, a mechanical process, uh, and it requires a considerable investment in a decortication line. Um, the hemp's are baled off the field in uh, square or round bales and, and stored uh, on farm or centrally, uh, and eventually it would be uh, conveyed and transported to a decortication plant um, where it's physically put through the machine and you end up with about 30% of the crop coming out the other end as fiber, about 60% as shiv uh, and about 10% as dust. Uh, and there are various markets that um, those various products can go into as well as the fiber. So in a way it's, um, there's investment needed there. It, it strikes me that potentially there's opportunity for sort of cooperative, um, uh, a cooperative organization to get together, group of growers um, that look to uh, invest in the decortication plant such that they have an end product that they can then supply into the, into the uh, supply chain. So you mentioned before that um, there's carbon capture from hemp. What are the other advantages um, to a farmer to grow hemp? Well, hemp can be grown year after year. I mean, that's one benefit. And for those farmers that aren't particularly engaged in, in farming, I would imagine it's a good crop because, you know, if it can be grown continuously on, on relatively low input requirements, it's, uh, it doesn't require a lot of management. Um, in terms of establishing the crop, it goes in fairly late, uh, probably end of April, beginning of May. If you've got black grass on the farm, for example, it gives you a good opportunity to clean up the fields before hemp goes in. Um, in good conditions, and in ideal conditions, it, it will give ground cover very quickly, so much so that uh, it outcompetes weeds. There's no known disease issue. Um, it has um, a what we call a phytoremediation effect, such that it can potentially clean soils that are perhaps have heavy, heavy metals or contaminants. Um, 
so the crop's in and it's away. It's in the ground until, as I say, August, September time. Um, once it's ready to harvest, it's it's doesn't really require any specific equipment. It will cut with a, a standard grassland mower. Um, you can buy more advanced machinery to cut at various heights, at sort of one min- meter intervals, um, on the on the vertical axis to 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 put the hemp into smaller lengths for decortication. Um, but it's it's mown into a swath. Um, it can be tedded out and 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 put back into the swath. But the important part is that it has to ret in the windrow for about four to six weeks. And that's perhaps one of the issues in the Scottish climate that would perhaps give some people some cause for concern. You know, what's the weather going to be like in in September, October with the the hemp on the ground? And the reason it's left on the ground for four to six weeks is so that the, the soil microbes allowed to sort of naturally break down the chemical bonds that hold together the fibers such that it uh, decorticates better. So on the premise that you don't lose the crop through inclement weather, it then gets bailed up conventionally. So the advantage from a farmer's perspective is that it can be, you know, grown and harvested with um, a conventional equipment that's probably already on the farm or easy for it to get a contractor in to do. Um, so, I mean, it's not a legume, it doesn't fix nitrogen. So from that point of view, it's not a break crop, um, but it will give a break to other uh, pests and diseases that you'll probably find within our, our conventional rotations with cereals and, and um, all seed rate, for example. It definitely is unusual um, leaving it lying for four to six weeks, but when you explain why it's done, you can completely understand why that happens. What other challenges do farmers face with growing the crop? One of the problems is the ability to site uh, hemp um, on a range of fields and those fields' proximity to public access and visibility an application needs to be made around February, March time um, to register yourself, register yourself as an interested party with the Home Office, and then they will consider the license. Um, because most of the seeds imported, there are minimum import volumes that are required enables us to import that seed. So I would imagine there would have to be some collaborative effort to import varieties of choice from abroad um, to bring costs down. Apart from uh, a relatively low dose of nitrogen, uh, about 100 kgs of of N per hectare um, seems to be about the the ballpark figure that people talk about in a normal soil indices situation. Um, Pesticides and insecticides aren't really, I should say fungicides and insecticides aren't really, uh, don't seem to be required. Um, Obviously, I think storage is quite important the the hemp needs to go uh, to the decortication plant probably no more than 16 or 17 percent moisture so it's not the sort of thing that you can stack up outside um, and uh, leave to the elements uh, so there is a cost involved in looking after the crop post harvest 
Yeah, which will be a challenge if you've had a particularly wet six weeks when you're waiting um, before you can bail it all up as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Typically, you might budget for sort of five or six tonnes a hectare of hemp um, as a saleable uh, volume. Um, and again, the the pricing that the farmer gets is very much dependent on the added value um, down the supply chain. And given the risks involved, i.e. with a new crop and the fact that the harvesting and, and um, the retting period is, a, is an exposed risk, you would have to think that it's probably at least got to return a better margin than any other spring-grown crop uh, for it to be considered. Um, but time will tell, and I'm sure the outcomes of the Hemp 30 project will be looking at this. And I know NIAB are involved in running variety trials um, in England. So there's a big collective effort going on uh, looking at all aspects of, of uh, the economics and the profitability of the crop. It's definitely great to hear about hemp. And I just get the feeling that it's not something you should be diving into right now unless a market opens up. I think it'd be very important to make sure there's a market for you there and then move into it then. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years as there's more information about it and more research on it as well. Yeah, I'm sure it's an evolving picture uh, with regard to the uh, climate to change agenda and the, the wish to reduce emissions uh, in Scotland. Um, hemp, you know, is one of those solutions, I think. And uh, it's, uh, from that perspective, it's it's a win-win crop. It um, it sequesters a tonne and a half of CO2 for every, every tonne of hemp grown. So um, I think from that perspective, there's... Uh, a lot of incentive for the government to perhaps support this as a new a new novel crop. I definitely think this is a case of watch this space. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. That's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Biddle. Ian, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Yes, my name's Ian Riddle, and I work on a part-time basis as, as a principal consultant with SEC Consulting. So we're going to be talking about sugar beet. This, um, well, whilst the other crops we've talked about in this episode are very much new crops, I feel like this is more of a historic crop which is coming forward potentially for a new generation to be growing so Ian why are people beginning to consider growing sugar beet again in Scotland well uh, that's an interesting question um, people are interested in growing sugar beet primarily because it is a crop with huge potential it's got a very high dry matter the highest dry matter yield of any crop and a big sugar yield so it could be grown Originally, the intention was to grow it for bioethanol, um, but that market's not worth a lot. So um, we're now looking at growing the crop for the creation of bioplastics. And fortunately, we've been in touch with uh, companies at Grangemouth who are interested in doing this, using the crop for to develop bioplastics, polyethylene products. 
that sounds like something that's quite unique. I'm assuming it's because we're looking to be moving away from using fossil fuels. That's correct, because the big attraction for them, the companies there, they use a lot of power and they are very keen to reduce their carbon footprint. And it's interesting that by using sugar beet, which sequesters two tonnes of CO2 equivalent in the process of making the polyethylene, you save two tonnes by sequestering and you also save another two tonnes by not using uh, fossil fuel and cracking fossil fuel to make your ethylene and polyethylene. So there is a net saving of four tonnes equivalent of CO2. So obviously that's a big appeal. Um, and also um, there's an appeal in using Scottish product and a, you know, a low carbon product to make your, your plastic. It definitely does sound like it's ticking all the boxes when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So when they're producing um, polyethylene, is there any other byproducts that they're producing as well? Um, there, there may be in the chemical side, but the other byproduct you've got is probably more for the agricultural side, because when you, when you convert sugar beet into ethanol, you actually cut it into small chips and you cook it and you separate the liquid, which becomes a, a syrup, which you turn into a concentrated sugar syrup, but you're left with all the fiber. And that could be sugar beet pulp, or it could be used for some other uses as well. Interesting. So just thinking about um, if farmers were to grow it. Firstly, have you heard of anyone growing it yet or is the project not at that stage? The project's at an early stage, but we have a number of farmers in Scotland who are already growing sugar beet varieties for their AD plants. They grow fodder, well, they call it energy beet. So there's fodder beet and sugar beet varieties, which are higher in sugar. So we know that there are, are at least five um, people who have been growing it for a number of years, one of which is uh, Gordon Cairns at Strakathra Estates. I just visited the other day. They've been growing it for, I think, seven or eight years and getting regular tonnages of 65 tonnes per hectare. And over that period, fortunately, they haven't suffered any problems from frost or, or you know, the, the sort of thing that, that could go wrong with a winter harvested crop. So that's been quite successful and it's been growing in different types of soils in different parts of Scotland. But it has to be grown in the best soils. That's the, the most important thing. Well, it's good to hear that if someone's been growing it for seven or eight years, they've obviously found that it is successful because you would be put off quite quickly trying something new if it kept failing. So it's good to hear. So um, when, he, when you're thinking about the rotation, how often in the rotation could you be growing sugar beet? Well, technically in the literature, it says you could grow it once every three years, but I think to be safer, it's best to grow it in a one in six rotation. So it then becomes a question of which crop does it displace? So it could be your break crop. It could displace uh, oilseed rape. It could displace potato or carrot crops or vegetable crops. It could even displace cereal crops. Um, the other consideration there is what do you grow after it? Because in a break crop, most people would want to get winter wheat in after a break crop with sugar beet, you might be able to get your winter wheat in for early harvest crops. You know, you can harvest from October onwards, but you're harvesting right through until April. So there are later crops that could probably only be finished or followed by a, a spring cereal. 
So I think the important thing for farmers to look at is, you know, once we, we get information on, on, you know, the price and the value of it, and we've done calculations on this, is to see, you know, what the value is over the whole rotation, what the profitability of the whole rotation is, uh, and look at it that way. But the comment we've had from farmers at focus groups we held early on this year was that they are very keen to get a new break crop, you know, and some of them identified crops they, they probably would replace at that time. But it's all down to money. It's all down to the economics. You know, it's down to the price of the crop, the fertilizer, all these sort of things put together. Yeah, you definitely have to think about the money aspect in it as well. Just so I get this clear in my head, so you're harvesting it um, all the way through till April. So when are you sowing the crop to begin with? You have to sow the crop relatively late. So people tend to start sowing the crop in mid-May. And the reason for that is because it can be susceptible to frost, a late frost after sowing, which would encourage bolting. So you get bolting and you don't get much of a root at the bottom. So you want to avoid that. So people tend to sow from mid-April mid to late May is the normal sowing season. It's actually a, quite a slow-growing crop initially. Uh, so you do, you know, weed competition can be quite bad. So you have to use at least three or four herbicides. But once it gets going and gets to autumn time, it really swells up quickly and it continues growing throughout the winter. So a September or October harvested crop might not yield as much as a January or February harvested crop. That's quite interesting that it can keep growing throughout the winter. So you're saying that um, when it's gets established it's not very competitive against the weeds and you're needing herbicides is there a range of herbicides that can be used on sugar beet or is it quite limited i think that's the answer it's it's there is a range of crops that it is herbicides they are limited but we've still got them available and obviously that would be a concern if some of these herbicides weren't available in future so i know there is some uh, research work into using mechanical weeding systems to see if that could be introduced but that's not commercially available yet. So what are the benefits of including sugar beet in rotation other than having it as a potentially a break crop? Um, it's, it's a cleaning crop once you've got the, you know, the, the shaws um, established. Uh, it's, it's high margin would be the main thing, I would say. Um, it's a break crop, so it's a break from disease like any other break crop, you know, for cereals. Um, and I think it's, I think the answer is actually it's a standalone high gross margin would be the thing for me. It'll be interesting to see if um, some of these companies do get it up and running um, to be making um, the bioplastics from it, what prices they are offering to the farmers as well in the long run. So what are the challenges growing sugar beet in the rotation? The challenge, the challenge uh, growing sugar beet, number one would be, I've already mentioned the frost and bolting risk at, at the front end of it, after you've sown it. Once you've put in the herbicides and a couple of fungicides, that's the crop pretty well there. You can shut the gate and just leave it to grow. The next issue you've got is you have to harvest it between October and eight, or even September and April, because you want as long a season as possible. Harvesting conditions aren't ideal all the way through winter. Uh, so for the AD plants, they've been able to pick and choose the time they can harvest. Uh, the biggest challenge will be 
if we're producing a big hectare and you know initially a figure of 17,000 hectares was described, which is massive, you would have to be harvesting most days throughout the winter or a lot of days throughout the winter with only a few breaks. And that might be more of a challenge. From a farmer's perspective, there's concern as to what machinery might do to soil structure and you know what, what kind of state the soil will be left in after harvest. And we are intending to monitor, you know, do some trials and monitor crops this winter just to see uh, how this how this goes and assess the number of harvestable days. It should, in theory, it should be okay, but you just can't tell with weather conditions. However, I mentioned earlier on, it has to be in the best land. If you have it on the, you know, what I would call prime agricultural land, land class 3.1, land class 2, class 1, limited amount of that as well, that will be a little bit better drained uh, than other, other soils. So if you've got that and you've got equipment with big flotation tires, it's not so bad. And the harvesting equipment, all the, the you know, harvestings we've viewed or videos we've seen um, shows that it doesn't look that damaging to soil, not as bad as potato crops where you're going a little bit deeper. It's good to hear, though, that you're going to be doing further research on some of these factors to see what the impact is, because that will help settle farmers' minds if it does go ahead and 17,000 hectares does go into sugar beet. It will give everyone a bit more confidence because they know there's uh, research and studies behind it. Yeah, yeah. That, there are a number of things to look at. And we, we've held these meetings with farmers and we know their questions. Uh, we know the kind of things they want to look at. From a farmer's perspective, the biggest thing is it's a new crop. It's not a new crop because it was grown between 1926 and 1972 or 74. So it has been grown in Scotland. Some people remember their father's or their grandfather's generation. And uh, some of these guys said they, they still miss sugar beet. So it has been grown before, but it's um, the only way we'll persuade a lot of people to grow the crop is by offering a good price. So we're being fairly realistic about that from the start. And some of the discussion back um, with some of the tiny growers was it need to be a price of £50 per tonne for the sugar beet. Um, a few years ago, sugar beet for sugar in England was worth only £20, £25 a tonne, but it's now up to about 40 so, you know, the price has gone up there and we would have to offer a high price or people are just not going to change because the, the, A, there's um, the knowledge that it has to be better than anything else that's currently in the rotation and B, there's a risk factor as well. You know, what would happen if there was a frost and some of the crop was lost? Yeah, I think the risk factor in Scotland is probably a lot bigger than it is in England because we definitely do have slightly harsher winters, although they have been a bit easier um, for the last few years. So see if that trend continues. It might make growing it easier in Scotland. Yeah, it might be easier and wetter. We just don't know. It was quite a dry January to March this year. So uh, we, will, we will just have to see. But it's very important that we do we do some trials and monitoring the people who are already growing it over the next few years and hold demos like we are about to hold a demo fairly soon, a demo day to let people see the harvester in action and see what the soil's like. So it's important we do that so that farmers can see what it involves. 
it sounds very interesting so if they go ahead with using sugar beet to make um, bioplastics what sort of time scale could we be looking at um, for getting to that point as I'm sure there's lots of studies and feasibility studies and research needing to happen beforehand yes um, unfortunately it's probably even if things go well it's probably quite a while off because first thing that would need to happen is the chemical companies would need to do a feasibility study uh, in some detail and that would involve a feasibility study on the agriculture side to see the interest of farmers and um, we've already done a little bit of work on setting up a co-op and what that would involve for the farmers um, then there would be a design and build phase of the refinery and that would take a few years um, and then there's testing before it gets set up. So we would estimate it's probably at least eight years until something can be set up and running. And working concurrently with that, from the, from the, there's a the chemical side and there's an agricultural side, a co-op would need to be set up and members taken on board. It's a little bit chicken and egg. Um, if we're going to supply huge tonnage, and it might not be 17,000 hectares, but a huge tonnage to the, to the chemical company, we need commitment from the farmers and need them on board. You need to buy all the equipment with maybe two-year lead times for some of the specialist sugar beet equipment. So that would give us the time, but there would be a, there's a lot of work needs to be done to get it off the ground and started. It all sounds very interesting. I feel like it's a watch this space and just wait and see how it progresses going forward. Yeah, very much so. Uh, we just... we. There's a bit, of, you know, a fair bit of work's going to go into it, and uh, we have already had two feasibility studies done, and they both suggested that it's possible the crop can be grown here. We know that already. The farmers' enthusiasm is there, uh, but it'll depend on having enough massive farmers wanting to do it. And to do that, we need to have contracts that are attractive to them. On one hand, you need a good price that's better than any other crop they've currently got. And the other, they need a bit of stability, a guaranteed price for a number of years. That's very interesting. And it's great hearing all about it. Thank you, Ian. Thank you to our three fantastic speakers. It's been very interesting hearing about these alternative crops. Next up, we have the update from Out in the Field. Hello, my name is George Chalmers, and I'm a consultant with SEC Consulting. This spring has been very challenging for farmers as they try and establish the spring crops. We're starting to see the sunshine and the soil warming up and we're now seeing more and more fields starting to brayer. Crops should start racing through the growth stages, hopefully, but unfortunately, that also means that the weeds will do the same. It now means that we need to start thinking about our weed control strategy. You need to really know what your problem weeds are. Is it grass weeds, broad-leaved weeds, or is it even wild oats? Remember, some weeds are more competitive than others. You have more upright weeds, such as wild oats or cleavers, that can cause real harvesting issues, and also potentially crop quality problems. And you've got other weeds at the other end of the spectrum that are quite prostrate in their nature, such as annual meadow grass, that can look pretty bad in the field, however, don't cause so much of a problem, certainly not in terms of crop yield. Ask yourself if you have a potential weed resistance problem. We're seeing more and more issues with, for instance, chickweed and not and herbicides struggling to control it. Maybe you need to start thinking about using a different chemical with a different mode of action. What are key considerations at this time of the year when it comes to weed control? Firstly, know your weeds. 
match the herbicides and their rates to the weed spectrum on your farm. Secondly, do you have resistance issues on farm? If so, think about using herbicides with different modes of action. And finally, going early with spring weed control gives you the best chance of effective control and also reduces competition to the crop. Thank you for joining us today and thank you to our three fantastic speakers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you're notified of future episodes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not try listening to one of the other Farm Advisory Service podcasts? There is a range of podcasts, including Stock Talk, Rural Roundup, Thrill of the Hill and Agriculture, as well as others. They're definitely worth a listen. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again next time. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.